First he said he was under a lot of pressure. Then he went into the laundry room. Then I heard a clunk. Then he said, ow. I see. The clunk would explain the bump. The clunk would explain the bump? We're not doctors, Nurse Bennett. Give it to us in layman's terms. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Ow. Be a buddy, daddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I got to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy, we have a whopper of a trope today. What are we talking about? Got hit. Who dis? Yeah. Could not have said it better myself. We are talking about the trope of getting bopped on the head and having your personality changed. This was one of the first things that popped into, this was one of the reasons why we make the podcast, right? Amnesia-based alter egos. Yeah, exactly. And specifically having to do with some sort of head trauma, this whole thing of they walked into the closet as Michael and they came back out as Michelle. You know, this is something that uh, just, they, they love to do it. It's very silly. I don't think it has a ton of basis in real life, especially the strategies to undo it when it does happen. But uh, what are the shows we're talking about? (laughs) So the shows we are talking about, we've got a bunch in the 60s this time. We're starting with the Flintstones, season one, episode five, Split Personality, and then the Addams Family, season one, episode 22, Amnesia in the Addams Family. Gilligan's Island, season three, episode 24, the second Ginger Grant. And finally, we've been waiting and waiting with bated breath for Charles in Charge. Season four, episodes 14 and 15, we get a double dose of Chaz. Yes, covering Charles in Charge for the first time on the podcast is a historic moment for the pod. It's a historic moment in my life, but we'll get to all that. Uh, Let me ask you first, Amy, have you ever had a traumatic brain injury that changed your personality? I'm sorry, who are you? I'll take that as as a, I don't know what. I was thinking when we were watching these that this trope is basically the story of regarding Henry, except without the reverse bop uh, curing you. Right. And in fact, some of the other episodes that are on our trope list are a parody of regarding Henry. They're like regarding whoever and like they do that same bit. Right. Mm -hmm. These ones couldn't do it because that movie didn't exist yet. Uh, Dramatic brain injuries are no laughing matter. I have nightmares about this. I still remember the videos they showed you in the five-hour driving course about what happens when you get into a car accident, your brain gets messed up. It is a terrifying, serious thing. So I I don't want to make light of that. It is a thing that happens in real life, but not in any way, shape, or form that resembles the way it happens in these TV sitcoms. And boy, do they love to do it. 
So I guess let's start with our first show, right? The Flintstones. Here we go. So the, in this Flintstones episode, we're season one, we're early on, and there's not even a Flintstones theme song yet. That didn't exist until season three. So we were very confused when this Shocking. episode started. This is one of those things like Jason doesn't have his hockey mask until part three of Friday the 13th, and James Bond doesn't have the gun barrel sequence until... Goldfinger, yeah, the original Flintstones episodes apparently do not have that iconic opening. But beyond that, we get a pretty straightforward story, right? It starts with Fred is angry at Barney because he drank his, his, do you remember what it's called? It's like his rock cola or yeah, something? Yeah, it's a cool, something cool, a cactus cola. And it's supposed to be like a beer that he's so excited to get home from work and have. So after that kind of preview cold open thing, and then the the long extended credit sequence that was not meet the Flintstones. No, that but the way it was we very know it, clearly the inspiration for the Simpsons open. It, yes. It's still, it's Fred making his way home from work. Right. And so the first scene that we get after that is Barney and Betty and Barney's working on his and he needs to borrow uh, some kind of tool from Fred. So he goes next door and Fred's not there. He's still probably stuck in traffic, Wilma says, trying to get home from work. And Barney is being very nice. And he's like, oh, you know, well, can I borrow this from Fred? Oh, I'll just go and grab it from his garage. He won't mind. He looks in the refrigerator and sees that he has a coconut cooler there and it is spelled C O O L A, a coconut yeah. kula. And he's like, Oh, that would be refreshing on this hot day. I've been outside working on the car. And um, you know, Fred won't mind. I'll just, I'll just take it. And so he takes it and leaves. And she's like, Man, that Barney is such a nice guy. If only Fred had just a little bit of that, he'll come in here any second and be grousing and yelling, and he never gets home and does chores. He just complains. Yeah. We see Fred. Fred immediately as, like we were talking about a few episodes ago, the cartoon version of Jackie Gleason from The Honeymooners. He's blustery and kind of grumpy. And you also see those old-timey gender roles that we know and love. He's a sort of authority figure in the house. Like you see this dynamic of Wilma, like, I don't think she's a battered woman or anything, but the sense of like, oh, I hope Fred's in a good mood. And, you know, that that whole, just that sort of uneasy dynamic from those times. But I do want to say the women characters in this are hilarious. Wilma and Betty are so funny. The voices are hilarious. The way they render their facial expressions, because it's so simple, like they they kind of have that way of talking like Lucy and Ethel. They just sound like those old timey kind of daffy ladies. And they're just really funny. Yeah. And I would say I think that they're not daffy at all. I think they are funny and they hold their own against these ridiculous husbands that seem to think they're in charge, but really are just like grumpy old men. And the ones who are holding the house down and keeping everything moving are the women. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, she, Wilma is an awful lot like Alice, like you were saying, or Lucy for sure. Mm -hmm. Betty's an awful lot like Ethel for sure. They definitely fall into that same kind of era. Yeah. So 
Fred, long story short, is is really mad at Barney. He comes home and he's having this whole diatribe about how traffic was horrible and work sucks. But the one thing I can count on is my cactus cola or, you know, coconut cola or whatever the hell it is. And and so he's cola. he's furious. He goes next door and yells at Barney. I thought it was hilarious. I never noticed before. Fred's like twice the size of Barney. It's yes. just so funny the way they draw them as being like, yeah, just completely yeah, out of proportion. Yeah. Watching the two of them talk to each other, it just got me thinking, you know, as a child of the 80s, it's so funny seeing them in a TV show and realizing like most of my experience with these characters is from cereal commercials, you know, cereal right. commercials and vitamins. Yeah. Like what vitamins a weird- for sure. Push pops. Yeah. Like what a weird turn of events that were like, let's make- Fred and Barney from the Flintstones, just synonymous with sugary cereals and vitamins. At this time, though, they were synonymous with Winston cigarettes because that was the sponsor for this show. And there was almost always some sort of like brought to you by Winston or product placement of Winston. And oh, whatever the tagline for Winston's, you see Fred lighting up a cigarette at the end of the day or whatever. But all that has been scrubbed from syndication because they only bought the sponsorship for the episodes as they aired. So that was all taken out later on. Yeah, that is kind of a bummer. I would like to see like just the hilarious anachronisms of you know characters smoking cigarettes on a show like that and you can find that on youtube because those clips do still exist sure but anyway you know it all of this is just sort of establishing for us or emphasizing for us how much of a grump fred is kind well, of a grump and a brute yes. and is not you know isn't even as you know barney is not like the end-all be-all man but at least he's uh, polite. Yeah, he he's comes nice. over to he's somebody's house. Yeah. Yeah. And Wilma says at some point, and I quote, she wants Fred to be calm, urbane, with a smile on his lips. Right. right. So that sort of sets up our be careful what you wish for scenario. Exactly. So he's yelling at Barney and he's like, I can't believe you drank my last cactus cooler. It's the only thing I look forward to all day long. I'm so miserable and I'm so angry now. And yeah, well, you think and he reaches over and he grabs a bottle that looks exactly like the close up that we got of the cactus cooler earlier. Only this time it says car polish and he chugs the entire thing. And I'm sitting there watching this like, oh my gosh, did I get this episode wrong? Like, does he not get banged on the head? Does he turn into some other amnesia alter ego because he drinks poison? Oh no, that's completely forgotten when he goes, what? And he throws the bottle up in the air and it comes back down and bonks him on the head. And it doesn't matter that he just chugged an entire bottle of poison. Yeah, it could have just been anything that tasted bad. You're also getting at something I'm noticing in general with all of these plot mechanics and everything. Nothing has anything to do with them being cavemen. You know, the fact that the record player is a little bird, it's like the only, like there are visual gags. Well, and that's something I made note of throughout the episode because I was like, you know, because they make a meal out of it every time they have these things that are like, oh, look, our garbage disposal, it's a uh, it's a dinosaur underneath the, yeah, and you have this thing. like whole long shot of like the garbage, you know, the the food scraps going into the sink and the rah, 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 happening and Wilma says, 
I just don't know what we would do without our garbage disposal. And she pulls back a, a curtain and there's a little dinosaur under there eating. And so I just thought that was really funny. There was another one they did where they said, uh, later on, we get Fred singing opera. This is the thing that they showed us twice in the preview and then later in the episode. And Betty says, oh, it's a, a mastodon must be caught in the tar pits again because it sounds like a dog howling. And that's like their yeah. comparison of a dog howling. And then the other one was that their shower is an elephant or some kind sure. of like ancient version of an elephant. Right. And that stuff, of course, that's what makes it what it is. Like that's what all of these 60s sitcoms are. Is like, let's do a normal family show and all the stories are just going to be these tropes that have already been done on the honeymooners and I love Lucy, but we're monsters or we're cavemen or whatever. And it's, it's layering this gimmick onto this otherwise sort of paint by numbers scenario. But my issue is that, yeah, besides a handful of those visual gags, it's just nothing, you know, you're telling me you couldn't come up with a way for Fred to get bopped on the head that has more to do with being in prehistoric times than him drinking car oil. Like that's car polish. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's just, it doesn't seem, it seems like already they've given up on making the prehistoric angle part of the story in any meaningful way. Yeah. I think it is. I think the way that they've done it is just in like, Oh wait, look at this sight gag. Isn't that funny? And it like gives them a moment. Like every time they have a fun little idea of, Oh, the car can be, the wheels can be stone and they can, it can be like a golf cart, but like pedal power, you know, foot power. I think they had a blast. Like the animators had a blast coming up with all those different little funny ways they could show yeah. like new things that are sort of new and cool in the homes in the fifties. And to have that be, Oh, this other thing, like what would be the stone age version of da da da? Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that cleverness is in the animation not in the writing. Right. But let's get to the, the main crux of this. Fred gets bopped on the head or bops himself on the head with the bottle or whatever. He becomes Frederick. And I thought this was so funny. And you see, uh, I'm sure this isn't originating these tropes, but you see the tropes that have persisted through time memoriam that when you're fancy, you call other people by fancier versions of their names, even though they don't want you to. I love that. So what was Barney's name? Bernard. He Bernard. Calls, yeah, he yes. calls Barney Bernard. And yeah, he goes around. He Elizabeth. Says, yeah. And he says something to Betty, like all sort of charming. He goes like, oh, you're the picture of beauty and grace or something. And she's like swept off her feet. Betty is like, oh, Frederick. Yeah. And her whole reaction to him is... Hilarious. I, I was taken off guard by how much I how much this worked on me. So apparently this voice is uh, a character that the the guy who does the voice of Fred Flintstone, Alan Reed, he used to do this character called Falstaff Openshaw on this other show, like the Fred Allen radio show that he was on years before, like all the Hanna-Barbera stuff. And so, yeah, so that is that character's voice. So he had it down pat. And that also, when he sings the opera, he used to do that in either this same funny character or a different character. Mm -hmm. So that opera part is something that he had sung before. So Frederick draws the ire 
of all the other husbands, right? First, the women are so into everything that he's doing, and he's doing the dishes, and he's you know making like he's very cultured, and he's complimentary, and he's bringing home gifts all the time, and he's helping out with the cleaning. I was like ticking off all of the love languages that Mm. he was fulfilling because like he was doing all those things, and the guys are getting all annoyed, and they want they don't know that Fred is Frederick. Only Barney knows that Fred is Frederick, so they're like who's this frederick guy our wives keep talking about he's the worst because you know he's doing all these things and i was kind of like he's actually just being like a good husband well there's two sides to that because <laughs> betty is like yes everybody be more like frederick and i took note of when barney says uh you know when betty is calling out barney be more like frederick he says that sissy talk regular guys don't talk like that which was you know this interesting uh, sign of the times yeah. but Wilma at first is charmed by Frederick, but then she starts to realize this guy, he, he's too hoity-toity. Yeah. This- is it possible for Frederick or is it p- possible for a husband to be too nice? And she breaks the fourth wall and says this direct to camera. Yeah. But also, it's not just his niceness. It's his weird, like you said, he's cultured now. So his idea of a good time is to go to a spelling bee. To go to a spelling bee and also to sing opera in the evenings, just like sitting around and having a lovely time, doll. Like, I'm going to sing some opera. And she's just like, oh, geez. Like, I like that you bought me a fur, but I'm really not interested in yeah, all the I rest. also noticed uh, when Wilma is trying on her fur, her stand-up mirror is like the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's like this giant slab of stone. Stone. But uh, she's like, you know, being a good guy is one thing, but like, I want to just go, I want to like do normal stuff. He's lost his ability to bowl for one thing. So he shows up at the bowling night. And he's throwing gutter balls and being all fancy pants. Yeah. Well, so Barney doesn't want to hang out with him anymore. And it was going to go to the bowling night without him. And Betty was like, you can't do that. Like, yes, he's different, but he needs to be included in the guy stuff. He's the captain of the team. Go invite him. And so she forces Barney to go over there and invite him. And he does. And then he very quickly reveals himself to be Frederick. And then all the guys come chasing after him. And he's got to run out of the bowling alley. And he doesn't want to go to the bowling uh, night in general, but Barney convinces him by saying, you're the captain. And he's like, well, I am never yeah. one to shirk from duty. Feels to his pride. Yes. So he goes. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that Wilma, as she realizes that she doesn't like, like it's become too much, he's he's gone overboard. One of the things she tries to do to kind of get him back to his normal self is to show him pictures of who he was before he got hit on the head. And he remembers. He says, oh, that was my uncouth period. Mm-hmm. He's the only one out of all of these people that that's true mm-hmm. with, that he's like, oh, no, I changed on purpose, yeah. which I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it's also interesting because it's the one strategy we're going to get in all these episodes that might actually work in real life or be suggested by like a a sane psychiatrist when somebody loses their memory or something. Sure. But instead, in the Flintstones, we get the very first, how do we deal with this? Well, let's call a doctor. And the doctor is a quack. And that's what happens in most of our episodes. They like they seek a medical opinion and they get bad medical advice. And the medical advice is 
in this case, nothing, right? Because the guy turns out to be a veterinarian and it doesn't even know what he's doing. Yeah. So he leaves and then Barney goes, you know what? I bet if we hit him on the head the same way he hit himself on the head, I'll undo it. Yeah. So this is something that's going to come up again and again. I wonder, is it because this works sometimes with like radios and stuff? Like the idea of like a machine can like get jostled. Oh, you can like bang the side of your TV and it'll go back to normal. I don't think that any version or variation of this could ever possibly work in real life. There is no even sliver of credibility to the idea that a second brain injury could somehow reverse the first. And yet we love to latch onto this in these stories. Yeah. How do you undo amnesia? Well, you hit him again. So yeah, Barney and Wilma and Betty, right? I think Betty's holding Fred or Frederick outside and talking to him about something. And Wilma and Barney are putting a big stone, like just like you would kind of put a trick bucket to dump water yeah, on something. Like they did head. to Piggy in Lord of the Flies. Right. Like when you go to open a door, the you know bucket of water or whatever will fall on your head. In this case, a stone, like a big heavy stone is going to fall on his head. And he opens, they, they call for him and he comes in and he opens the door and the Stone hits him on the head and they're like, well, Frederick. And he's like, what are you calling me that for? And he's back to his old grumpy self. Yeah. He remembers his bowling team and yeah, all's well that ends well. Like I said, I thought that this was going to be kind of a chore and just kind of lame and and stupid. And I, it, it was really funny. And because they haven't introduced the children or anything yet, it, it's so simple and straightforward and yeah just every time Wilma or Betty would open their mouths I thought it was funny this this was very fun yeah I really I enjoyed this very much okay let's hop ahead a few years to the Adams family Adams family we're looking at season one episode 22 amnesia in the Adams family Yep. So this is our second time talking about the Adamses. I think I I wasn't a super fan the first time around, but I liked them better than the Monsters. I don't know what's what's your feelings going into the Adams family. Before I watched it, I was f- looking forward to it. I thought this was a funny episode. I really enjoy watching the Adams family for the way Mar- Morticia moves around, <laughs> but I. I think this also kind of is that same thing that the Flintstones do. It's how can we flip whatever normal family thing is and make it Stone Age? This one is how can we flip whatever normal family thing is and make it macabre? Yeah. And we also, you know, last time we talked about the Adamses, I had my whole sort of diatribe about how by making them so different and like, quote unquote, freaky and weird it sort of reestablishes all of these norms of our society. It sort of teaches us what a normal family is by having them be the opposite day. And so with this episode, we get a flip on the flip, right? We get now the central character turning normal and sort of reacting the way a quote unquote normal person would or should react if they suddenly found themselves in a household that was so spooky and ooky and weird. Right. So they're, it begins with them, they're filling out their wills or doing some sort of legal 
thing, right? Yeah. So Insurance. More, yeah. So Gomez has just taken out a million dollar double indemnity life insurance policy on himself to benefit Morticia. And this was a decade or so after Double Indemnity, the movie, which is uh, one of the most famous film noirs from the 40s about this murder, this, you know, uh, double crossing woman that gets this insurance guy into trouble. So I was thinking that this whole sort of premise was a little bit of a nod to double indemnity, that aspect of it. Yeah, because, well, what happens is, you know, Gomez, he bangs his head and his personality changes, like what is happening in all of these episodes. And then just like in all of these episodes, the answer to that is we have to figure out a way to hit him on the head again to change him back. But this one gets a little more farcical in terms of everyone in the family has that same idea, but they don't share it with each other. Um, and so everyone is trying to hit him and they keep doing it and undoing it and doing it again and undoing it again. So his his personality keeps changing back and forth throughout the episode confounding Morticia who keeps yeah. like walking into the room and dealing with a different person but um yeah but also after a few times Morticia one of the last times hits Fester by accident and Gomez sees it and when he's in his alter ego personality and he is like they're trying to kill me they're trying to kill me because they want my insurance money yeah, right. That also plays into it that because they're doing this life insurance thing, the way he gets hit is his Indian clubs. Yeah. I don't even know what this is. So this I point, didn't either. And I was also nervous. I was like, oh gosh, what are these? They look like bowling pins. They do. So they're an exercise equipment from India. Oh, so and is this the, the one case where a show is less racist than we thought? I mean, yes and no. It's still very imperialist and colonial because the the way they came to be called Indian clubs is that the British Navy, who was stationed in India when they were the imperial power there, they um, the British Navy officers started using them to do workouts as. Uh, fitting with a local custom because that was something that the locals used to do workouts. And so they started using them and then they became a thing that they took back to Great Britain. And that's how they were. That's why they became called Indian clubs, where I'm assuming the non-colonial name is something else. So yeah, he's, he's messing around with those, bobs himself in the head. He doesn't get a fake name or anything. He just, like I said, becomes a normie. You know, again, love those old-timey gender roles. A lot of this plays out with how Morticia dresses and her choice of wardrobe and which clothes of her he's going to insist she destroy versus which ones he insists she wears. Yes, he doesn't get a new name, but he does say who's Gomez. Mm. So he doesn't tell us what his actual name is, but he says to Morticia, who's Gomez? And then he's like, oh, I don't believe we've met to yes, her. This so one is he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't remember his family. He's like, we're married? We have children? Yes. Oh, so you're saying we've been more than friends? And yeah. she's like, we're married. And, you know, so there's all of that. Well, so Morticia recommends that they go 
to his study, you know, to and put him on the rack or laying on the bed of nails or something like that to kind of straighten him out because he's not feeling well. So they'll go to their sort of spa that they have in their house where grandma and Uncle Fester are currently getting treatments as well. And Uncle Fester's on some sort of um, vice that like squeezes his head until he gets a headache. And Grandmama is in the stocks, mm-hmm. right? Where you yes. would like be in the town square and they throw tomatoes at you. So she's in the stocks and she's like, oh, I need to stay in here for at least another two hours to get my beauty rest. And Gomez, he makes um, multiple jokes about how his family and his children are ugly. So, you know, he was like, when Grandmama said that was her beauty rest, he was like, maybe stay in there a little longer, um, making fun of how she looks. And then when he uh, Morticia takes them to see the children, thinking maybe that will help, and Pugsley and Wednesday are crashing trains. They're playing with the train set. And he, I think Morticia at one point is like, oh, um, you know, Pugsley's the vision of you or the portrait of you. And he turns and he looks at Pugsley and he's like, oh, is there a mirror around here? Yeah, his reaction to everything, he's horrified, but in a snarky way. Like his reaction to everything is just to make little quips. Right. I was noticing as we went through this, I think Fester and Wednesday are the characters that really suffer the most from comparison to the 90s version. You know, when I watch these older ones, John Astin as Gomez and the lady that does Morticia and everything, like, they have a certain charm where it's like, oh, this is a totally different thing, but this is fun. But every time that Fester is on or the kids are on, I'm just kind of like, oh boy, Christopher Lloyd was really good yeah, in, in that nineties one. Christina Ritchie, she she was really good. And yeah, it's just that that generational comparison, I think those older versions don't hold up as well of those well, characters. And also in this version, Wednesday's younger and a yeah. lot smaller than Pugsley, where I, I I'm assuming they didn't necessarily change her age for the stuff in the 90s, but I just always had the impression that Wednesday was the older sister to Pugsley because she was so much more in charge. Yeah, in the TV show, they come across as little kids, kind of like we were talking about the little ones in the Partridge family. They're going to be a little proper, a gag here and there. In the movies, especially the second one, they really make them characters and part of it. So it's a little bit of an apples to oranges thing. You know, just something I noticed. But anyway, the story sort of settles into, like you said, this kind of silly farce where they're all bopping them on the head because no one's on the same page. They've all got the same idea. This was disturbing to me. Again, the idea so many yeah, times. of this guy just again and again getting struck on the head. Obviously, it's, you know, getting upset about this is like getting upset about the Roadrunner. But I'm just like, oh. Boy, that I don't like that idea. Well, so, okay, the one thing about this that was a little bit weird to me was their whole thing is like violence is what they do for fun, yet Morticia didn't want to hit him in the head because she didn't want to hurt him because she loved him so much. And so she convinced Lester to do it. And all of the family, it would be like, if it was any other episode going to hit someone in the head or being each other with baseball bats or whatever would 
be just a normal like, oh, look at our funny joke. We're going to go play baseball, which really just means we whack each other in the head. Like that would be a normal thing. But this time they didn't want like they were all a little nervous about hitting him and they they felt bad because they didn't want to hurt him. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm like, hmm, that doesn't really fit with like the way that they normally do things. But they, we did have a nice kids scene though, where the kids get to come, they come up with the idea to hit him in the head. All, like I said, everybody has the idea sort of independently and they all grab an Indian club and do it. But Wednesday gets a little moment where she's like, Pugsley, you have to do this and don't worry about him. He'll be distracted. And she's like, she is like, daddy, will you tell me that story again about, you know, whatever, whatever. And they completely distracts him. So Pugsley can whack him. Yeah. Morticia gets her idea from a big book, some sort of like medical science book. Yes. It's a medical book. Yet again, where do we get this information from? Medical professionals tell us to undo amnesia, bop him on the head again. Yeah. I wrote down pseudoscience at best. Uh, But yeah, it all, you know, sooner or later, he's back to normal. And this is, we get the subtrope of the secondary victim of the personality change, right? right? The sort of collateral damage that while we're fixing character A, Character B is going to somehow get bopped on the head so we can end on this note of, uh uh-oh, here we go again. Right. So Fester gets accidentally whacked. We don't hear much from him for the rest of the episode. And then the button at the end is he's like, who's Fester? Yeah. Uh, like I said, this is obviously, you know, it's, it's a fun idea for this show. It's a way... To, you know, just give everyone a chance to sort of double down or reiterate all of their wackiness and, you know, just to let uh, Gomez have his opposite day and, you know, be be different than he normally is. Right. There was a few really fun moments in this episode. So Morticia gets to make a little bit of a meal uh, out of this. So, you know, they have these like nicknames Bubula and Karamia and all of this. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't like when he's in his alter ego state, he doesn't like Bubula, even though Bubula really turns him on normally. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, she calls him Bubula and he's like, oh, please don't. I mean, call me anything. Call me Honey Bun, Doll Boy. Yeah. And so Morticia has this inner monologue that's like going over the faces that she's making. And she you can see it all happening in her face. She's just like, oh, God, he's the worst. He's not even a man anymore. I can't take much more of this. This is horrible. I hate this guy. Blah, blah, blah. And then she looks back at him and she like chokes out the words, oh, boy. And then, you know, makes her way upstairs. We see her actually do one stare yeah. in this episode. They have to do all sorts of camera tricks uh, in multiple scenes. One time where she's coming down the stairs, Fester's calling to her after he's bopped him the second time mm-hmm. to turn him back into Gomez and actual Gomez. And he calls to Morticia and she's at the top of the stairs and we see her like Fake walk downstairs. Like what's happening is that she's just right, like kind the of old trick of going behind the counter and saying, "I'm going to the basement." Yes, 
And and then they only are filming her from the waist up. So she could have like hauled up the dress and actually done stairs because she can't walk in stairs in that dress. And then we see her, they like cut the shot and she's just coming down the last two steps. Only that's not where she was. They have this like forced perspective. She's actually next to the staircase and moving into frame to make it look as though she's come down the stairs. It's so great. I was like, oh my gosh, the camera tricks they have to do with this woman's costume. And then at the end of that scene, she turns around to go back up the stairs and takes one step and then it cuts away. But I was pretty impressed. And then um, the other thing that I thought was really funny is that one of the ways they show he's like not regular Gomez, he's this like normcore Gomez is that he's reading a stock ticker. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's a man of the, <laughs> you of know, the times. as men do, they sit here with their stock ticker and they read it. Yeah. So look, for the love of God, two wrongs don't make a right. Don't hit the person or with six the, wrongs yeah. in this case. Repeated brain injuries don't help. So they end the episode with Thing sandpapering the lumps off of Gomez's head uh, because he's gotten so many. It gave me the yes, willies. that is some Rob Zombie torture porn stuff. And they just, and they said, I mean, it was the entire last good minute and a half of the episode is just Thing sandpapering the back of John Aston's head. And it was like, I could barely listen to the lines because it was giving me the willies. Okay, so, so much for Adam's family. Let's move forward in time a couple years to Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island, season two, episode 24, the second Ginger Grant. Um, this is the second time that Gilligan's Island does an amnesia plot. The first was in season one, and we had the skipper have amnesia and all sorts of hilarity ensues. We chose this one specifically because this was the one where Marianne thinks she's Ginger. So her alter ego, Marianne, trips over a rock and bangs her head after watching Ginger perform, a la Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And she was just enraptured during the performance. And so when she comes to, after hitting her head, Marianne thinks she's she Ginger. She has become Ginger. But let's back up for a second. This is our first time talking Gilligan's Island. This is another big, uh, you know, it's a show that casts a big footprint, I think, but a little bit of a punchline. I think Gilligan's Island, to me, you know, when we were growing up, it was already before our time it was already in the past it was it was synonymous with an old goofy sitcom you would say ah that guy sits around watching gilligan's island all day and that's meant to mean he's a screw up you know yeah and i i think that was well first of all gilligan gilligan's island only lasted 3 seasons and it's because i mean there's some controversy going that i can tell you about but it was not popular amongst grown-ups. Yeah. It was popular amongst younger people and it had like this prime spot on CBS. And so we are watching kind of the end of the third season here. In its third season, the showrunner, the producers were told by a CBS executive, you've been renewed. How great. Um, the professor and Marianne went out and bought new houses thinking everything was secure. And then Gunsmoke was canceled on another network. And the head, uh, like the CEO of CBS was like, uh, that's my wife's favorite show. We can't 
cancel that. We need to find a way to get that back on the air. And so they canceled another sitcom that was going to start that year called Doc and Gilligan's Island so that Gunsmoke could have its place. And Gunsmoke did very well for itself, rebounded its ratings to previous levels and even exceeded it and ran for 20 seasons, whereas Gilligan's Island was only popular with some young folks. But I would contend that Gilligan's Island has kind of become like a cult classic. Yeah, I think we've talked about how growing up we were sort of at the mercy of which old-timey shows would come on Nick at Night or these syndicated things. So for me, we had Brady Bunch. We had Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. I don't remember really having Gilligan's Island. Oh, I'm I sure, had Gilligan's Island. I'm sure it was available somewhere on the dial. And Flipper. Yeah, see, we had Lassie. For whatever reason, I don't remember Gilligan's Island being on a lot my dad was a fan of Dobie Gillis, who was, uh, that's the TV show that Bob Denver was on before this. He played Maynard G. Krebs, the beatnik, you know, dopey best friend. And then he parlayed that success into the, you know, the lead role on Gilligan. So if anything, I was a little more familiar with Dobie. Dobie Gillis. With Dobie Gillis. And Maynard, whatever. Yeah, than with Gilligan. But yeah, I've always thought of this as, you know, like I said, it's it's legacy is a legacy of silliness. I yes. Think. A three-hour tour, but yet they have like hundreds of outfits and then random other people are able to come to the island. Electricity. And all sorts of things that, yes, it's very ridiculous. But it's funny and it was, you know, it, it, it gives us a lot of room to play around in and the uh, Skipper and Gilligan relationship with little buddy and all that is funny. But mo- most of that doesn't exist in this episode. This too kind of turns into a farce. Yeah. And so Marianne comes to think she's ginger. The professor checks her out. So the professor is not only a professor, but he's also a doctor. Like anything having to do with academia, he's got. Yeah. So he's your Frasier. He's yes. your generic, sophisticated intellectual guy. He invents radios. He knows how to hypnotize. He's a psychiatrist. Now, when you say he knows these things, his theories are ridiculous. His hypotheses are absurd, right? Sure, but he's the reason they have electricity. So, so anyway, so yes, he is throwing out nonsense, but he's consulting his books that he brought for this three-hour tour. So he says, "Look, if we confront Marianne with what she perceives as an alternate reality, she'll have like." a traumatic brain event. Like it it won't compute and she'll have a complete breakdown. So we all have to play along and act like she's Ginger. And that includes Ginger. You have to now dress up like Marianne because if she thinks she's Ginger and she sees another Ginger, that's going to throw her for a loop. It's not going to be good. And she's also going to wonder where Marianne is. Yeah. I wrote this scenario makes the other shows seem realistic. Like this <laughs> is so much worse. So convoluted, (laughs) but it gets more convoluted. Just the idea, you know, just that getting bopped on the head and having your brain generate a new personality isn't enough. You somehow become the person that you're looking at or thinking about. And then this guy's plan is, yeah, we need to have you, Ginger, disguise yourself as Marianne. It's just so 
wild. Well, and the most fun part of all of this is in what keeps happening is that Mr. Howell has to explain to Mrs. Howell what's going on because Mrs. Howell is like in their tent or their like camp or whatever. And Mr. Howell has been around and is seeing all of the things that are going on. So he's trying to relay to Mrs. Howell what's happening. And he's like, okay, so Marianne is Ginger. So Ginger is Marianne. She's dressing up. She's getting a wig. And Mrs. Howell's like, wait, what? And so they have this whole round robin thing where they keep trying to explain that Marianne is Ginger and Ginger is Marianne, but Marianne is like this and Ginger's like that. And and it's crazy. And then the professor decides, okay, so she's not snapping out of it. I need to hypnotize her. And if I hypnotize her, then I can change her back into Marianne and Gilligan is eavesdropping, like snooping on them while they're doing that. And he's watching the the hypnosis happen. And so he gets hypnotized. It works on him, but it doesn't work on Marianne. So when the professor snaps his fingers, she wakes up and she's still doing her ginger voice. Like, Oh, I don't know what's going on. And what the professor has said is that when you hear the word Marianne, you will become Marianne. Well, Gilligan walks away before he hears the professor say the word Marianne. So he goes off to wherever he is. And then the somebody says something about Marianne, which woom, immediately yeah, turns, that turns him into Marianne. into Marianne. While he's in the bathtub talking to the skipper. He's talking to the skipper as himself, Gilligan. They're just casually talking. Then the skipper mentions Marianne and he flips out. He becomes Marianne. And in thinks, the, while he's in the bathtub. Yes, and he's like, that's why- how dare you, you brute? Why, why are you in the bathroom with me? Why why are you in woman. the girls' camp? You're right. It happens while he's in the bath, and he makes the the joke. As well, Gilligan as Marianne is like, "Why are you here in this? Uh, you know, in the girls' camp?" And um, and then he looks around, and he's like, "Oh, I went to the wrong bathroom," and then like runs out in a towel and comes on comes upon the professor and Mister and Missus Howell. So then we get the whole round robin thing again of Mister and Missus Howell trying to say to one another that Ginger is Marianne and Marianne is Ginger, except for now Gilligan's also Marianne and Ginger doesn't want to be Marianne anymore. So we've got two Gingers and we're fresh out of Marianne's. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of funny details in this. Uh, I noticed when the professor is hypnotizing her, he goes, now keep your eyes on this shiny object, right? Like they just wrote in the script object because they didn't know what it was going to be. And they couldn't bother to update it. (laughs) it when he actually had his watch or whatever it was he was using. I was relieved that we at least get a solution that is not another Strike to the head, you know, yes. at least they're trying different things besides just clobbering him. Sure. Uh, clobbering her. And yeah, ultimately, they're like, look, what we're going to have to do, right? She's obsessed with this idea of being ginger, of being this 
actress, this performer. We're going to have to let her do that and make a fool of herself. Let her totally freak out under the pressure of being on stage and realize that she isn't a good singer. And then she'll snap out of it. Yes. Right? So Thank you, whole, doctor. The whole point was to not like cause her to have uh, this like, you know, traumatic event because that would, you know, make her have like some psychological trauma. Now we're going to force, force her in to psychological trauma, yeah. put her on stage. Stage, put her in a dress. Oh, that's another cute bit. Marianne is considerably shorter than Ginger. And so she's staying in Ginger's tent or whatever, and she cuts all of her dresses. Now, can I tell you, watching this episode made me understand the meaning of the phrase cut down to size. She uses that phrase literally, like yeah, not as a turn of phrase. Yeah. And I, I've always understood that as, oh, this will cut them down to size. I never realized, oh, that originally meant when you cut clothing to size to fit somebody. She says cut down to fit. And I realized, oh, cut down to fit and cut down to size are these synonymous phrases that that became a, a turn of phrase. Yeah, look at that. So she does just that. She cuts all of Ginger's clothes down to size, as it were. And then we get this recreation of the very first scene where Ginger was performing, yeah, I want to be loved by you, and doing all of that stuff with the feather boa and the yeah. lips and Super the breathy Marilyn voice. Monroe, like you said. And um, so now we get Marianne's turn to do it. It's not like she's singing horribly. It's more like she just doesn't quite have the same chutzpah right. that the real Ginger has. And so instead of going like, loved by you, she's just going, loved by you. And it's like, yeah, it's not great, but I'm not sure that this is going to traumatize her to the point that it's going to reverse her brain injury. <laughs> well, no. And I mean, it didn't work at first, right? So she was mostly singing on key and then she would have like a bad note, like on the U, she would be on the wrong note or something. And what kept flustering her was the boa. She like couldn't remember the choreography and didn't know what to do with the boa. And so, and then she was like, oh, wait, let me start again. And so started again, but then forgot the lyrics and got really flustered and is like, so sorry, I don't know what's wrong with me, you know, and that was kind of like, that was it. She was like, I just don't know. I just don't know. And then she trips. She trips or just sort of collapses, but problem solved. Right. Except for Gilligan is still Marianne. <laughs> secondary personality change. Exactly. We get that same, here we go again, note to end on. I also just wanted to point out, this is our second makeshift record player, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. We have yeah, a little right. one and the Flintstones, and we have a little whatever the hell there. They Root use Goldberg the ship's thing. wheel. Okay. They've taken the ship's wheel off of the boat, the minnow, and um, it is the turntable. And then um, Mr. Howell is cranking some band that's turning another band that's making the turntable go around. So he's got to crank it like you would, you know, an old phonograph or something. Yeah because there was no electricity to run that. 
But the other thing that I thought was an honorable mention was Mr. Howell does a fantastic Ed Sullivan impression to introduce Marianne mm-hmm. as Ginger in this ending scene. He's like, oh, we've got a really good show for you tonight, you know, because Ed Sullivan famously didn't sh- say show, he said shoe. So we've got a really big shoe for you yeah. tonight. And so he like does this whole thing and he really does sound like Ed Sullivan. It's great. And they give him a little extended bit there to do. Yeah. And I like I like the fakeness of this show. I like that we're back in front of a studio audience and this is just a little pile of sand and a few fake trees. And it's got that sense of like, yeah, there's this like aspect of vaudeville to it, like the old timey sitcoms where we're putting on a little show and of course, we're not on a real island and there's no real water anywhere. And that's sort of part of the charm. The other just random observation I wanted to make, we haven't talked about the skipper and watching him, I was like, is this guy and Archie Bunker the same person? Like, did Carol O'Connor just like split at birth and become this other guy? Like, they're the they same freaking person. I know. They, I was thinking the same thing. They, I was like, man, he must have taken some of that like energy of the skipper and put it in to his character because Archie Bunker is like an amalgam of, you know, Jackie Gleason and Fred Flintstone and the skipper. Like, yeah. it's this weird sort of confluence of, other characters we've seen. They look very similar, but I was surprised at the extent to which the skipper was so sort of goofy and low status. Like I would have guessed that Gilligan was the goofball and he would be a little bit more of like the straight man, like an authority figure. And I feel like the skipper is always tripping over himself and floundering and, oh, sorry, do we do? Like, he's just as goofy as Gilligan. He's blustering in that way. And he is, like, he's not dopey in the way that Gilligan is dopey, but he is, like, he just can't get his act together. You know what I mean? He gets into trouble in these little minor ways. He's like, you gotta do this, Gilligan. You just gotta do it. You gotta do it because I said you gotta do it. And then he, like, runs out. He definitely isn't the straight man character. No, he's that ineffectual saved, and, yeah, you know. Yeah, I think that's more saved for Mr. Howell and the professor. They get that kind of, like, straight man. He's more of just like, what are we going to yell again? You got to do something. So, I don't know. Like I said, this one was, so far, the goofiest of the bunch. I appreciate that it didn't involve further head trauma. Moving on to Charles in Charge. Here we go. I know you've been waiting. I'm physically giddy and nervous. I feel like I'm on a first date or something talking about Charles in Charge for the first time on the podcast. This is, of course, season four, episodes 14 and 15, Charles Splits. But just to, to sort of back up and give, give some general context here, uh, like you said, I think nostalgia-wise, Charles in Charge is my favorite sitcom. It's, you know, it's just what, for whatever twist of fate, I was watching, you know, from ages 12 to 14, 15, maybe. I was just in love with Nicole Eggert. I think, you know, her and Tiffany Amber Thiessen were like the two sort of queens of the the teenage heartthrobs at those times. But Nicole Eggert just, he just had a certain something. I think looking back on it, the way that the show has a spectrum of ages, like a lot of family sitcoms try to do, 
But I think this one just really got it right for me, having the parents be a total non-issue, having all of the plots be either about these teenage girls and their sort of dating mishaps or high school mishaps, or these two college guys and their foibles. Uh, all of that was just exactly what I wanted to consume at that time. And here's the part that's a little tricky. While he's not necessarily the most admirable person in real life, I think Scott Bayo just has this charisma and as this Charles character, I just really bought into this sense of like decency and coolness that he had where he can give you sage advice and he will tell you what the right thing is to do, but he's also just a cool guy and girls like him and he's got a lot of friends. I just, he, he was able to, to sell that in a way that I just completely bought into and to an extent completely buy into now. And so I've seen every episode of Charles in Charge at least five times. We've watched them all together you and me within the first few months of our relationship. So yeah, I like this TV show. Yeah, he wooed me with Charles in charge. Uh, what <laughs> Unfortunately. About you? So yeah. So Charles, um, I think you're right. He definitely is able to strike that balance as fictionalized as it is of the like I'm cool, but also I'm a, like a good guy. And this Chaz character is really fun because it's kind of like if Chachi grew up and turned into like a full asshole instead of kind of, you know, getting the uh, rough edges sanded off, as it were, yeah. by um, by Joni. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is... <laughs> Watching Charles in Charge with you is a joy because you're like a kid in a candy store. You get so excited. And so it's fun to watch a show with someone who's such a fan. Yeah. And so this one, right, Charles becoming Chaz, again, when we're talking about, oh, let's do a podcast about all the silly sitcom tropes, like this jumps out immediately. And now that we're getting to, you know, the fourth of our four shows here, you can really kind of look back and say, these kind of stories sort of draw a line in the sand between your sitcoms that are trying to have some grounding in reality versus your sitcoms that are going to be a dopey little vaudeville act in the form of a family story or absolutely whatever. and we got more and more of that type of like dopey silliness in charles in charge as the seasons went on and particularly when our friend scott vincent bayo was directing yes. and this is a double episode uh, SVB joint, as it were. Yeah, he directed probably at least a third of the episodes after a certain point, after yeah. like season three or four. The ultimate Charles in Charge episode, just in case we end up never, never discussing it, I want to say it now. There's one where they meet a guy who has an invention that can turn anything into a hot dog. And so you take any object and smush it into this machine and he presses a button and it spits out, you know, what in real life is just a hot dog that has been painted with the pattern 
of whatever you put in there, like your shirt or something. And I just think of that as the quintessential, like that kind of sitcom, an 80s shot on video, goofy, you know, made for syndication sitcom. Like that is that in a nutshell, you know, in its purest form. Yeah. And I think you can also kind of track the inanity of Charles in Charge with the descent of the character of Buddy Lembeck, who at first is just sort of like a surfer dude, kind of like friend. And then he gets more and more dopey and dumb and ridiculous until the last couple seasons. We just like it's nothing but him mugging for the camera after being called dumb or saying something dumb. Yes, he's very dumb, but I would also argue that he's an example of one of these overall sitcom megatropes that you even see in Friends, which is the selective stupidity. The Sometimes I'm dumb in the sense that I've never heard of Jeffrey Chaucer, and sometimes I can't even open a door. You right, know, like exactly. it's going to be like I'm too dumb to live if that's what is needed for this joke. Right. And that is what happened with Joey's character as time went on. Like you would, in, in Friends, you would see, you know, yeah, he's supposed to be somewhat of a himbo kind of at the beginning, but towards the end of Friends, yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, he's touched. Like, he needs his friends to make sure he can get to and from the subway. Yeah. But so this episode starts with, uh, and I think this is maybe going to be our sitcom study drinking game phrase, uh, gender roles, right? We get this whole premise is Charles has this girlfriend that he's been seeing for a long time. Charles in Charge loved to pull this maneuver of starting a story with this girl that you've been dating for the last six months or whatever. Like he's always in this relationship that has been going on for a long time, even though we've never heard of this person and he was in a, he was with another girl the last time. Right. But yeah, this whole premise is Charles has this girlfriend who is sanding off his rough edges, as they say. And you know, the, the sort of present example of this is they want to go to a movie. What movie are they going to go to? Well, of course, Charles wants to see the Dirty Harry Film Festival, right? But uh, no woman would ever want to see that. And when he's called out on it later, what movie did you end up seeing? Cinderella, right? Which no man could ever possibly want to see. I will just go on the record, sign me up any day for Cinderella over Dirty Harry. But yeah, this whole thing is like, this girl is a bummer, man. She's, you know, you're, you're domesticated. You're, you're not, you know, you're, you're not dangerous or I don't know. He's just kind of losing his edge because of this girl. Right. And I, I mean, at first when we hear this, it's Buddy complaining about it. And so Charles in Charge, the premise of the show is Charles is a college student and his day job, like how he's putting himself through college, is that he's a nanny to these three kids, two teenage girls and like a tween boy. And he lives in their basement. And the mom also kind of stepped away from her role um, midway through the series because in real life, the actress got married and kind of didn't want to be an actress anymore, but they didn't let her go from the show. So she just had some random appearances here and there, but mostly was gone for the fourth and fifth seasons. 
And so they had Ellen Travolta, who plays Charles's mother and also played Chachi's mother in Happy Days. Um, they have Ellen Travolta come in and become a more prominent character as the mother of the children sort of fades out. And so we have the like older people dynamic of the grandfather, Walter, Charles's mom, Ellen Travolta, and then Charles and Buddy as the young people, but not children. And then you've got the three younger kids. Yeah. Ellen Travolta is John Travolta's sister. Uh, she is the hammiest of the bunch by far. Oh, you she's really so see. great. She got her foot in the door those first few episodes. Oh, let, let me on the show. I'll be his mom. It'll be nice. So you, you need someone. And then she cranks it up to a thousand percent with her frantically pacing around the set. But uh, because of the shot, you can only pace three steps. So figure, figure that out. Yeah. She obviously was like, let me go as big as I can. Yes. Um, so, so Charles and Buddy are having this conversation and Buddy is explaining to Charles all the ways that this girl, Jocelyn, is no good for him. And he's saying that like, oh, Charles, you know, you're just like, you're not yourself. She's turning you into a namby-pamby poop squeak. Yes. So Charles is like, that's not true. You know, she just is making me a better version of myself. She wants me to be a little more cultured. And I, you know, I, I absolutely can be a little more cultured. We all could use that, right? So Jocelyn comes in and it seems like Buddy's just kind of being overboard, right? But then Adam comes home from school and he got beat up by a bully. Yeah, he's always being bullied. That's always this younger boy. That's like 80% of the time. That's his story. So he comes in. He he got beat up at school and Charles is going to talk to him like, okay, here's what you need to do the next time you come upon a bully. And he's faced with this conundrum because he wants to tell him, you know, you got to crack him in the skull, which by the way, based on your like initial take on Charles wouldn't be something Charles would ever want to say to begin with. No, it's all, this whole story is uncomfortable and lame. I think that one of the most insidiously sexist tropes is this thing of the girlfriend or the wife as the sort of authority figure or the, the person. Yeah, exactly. The sort of, you know, limiting factor. And so in this case, yeah, it's debatable. Look, this is the eighties, right? How do you stand up to a bully when, you know, it, it, there's, there's not an easy readily available question to what exactly is the right advice to give Adam in this case. But the way it's presented is Charles would like to say, if somebody starts with you, I think this is, again, sort of going back to Scott Bayo's kind of old school, you know, uh, sort of tough but nice attitude. It's like, if somebody starts with you and they're, you know, they're messing with you, then yeah, it's okay. Or even like, it's what you should do to confront them. And if necessary, to strike back. And he feels like he can't say that. And every time he's about to say that, you know, she gives him this look and he kind of backs down. And yeah, the whole thing, I, I just hate that trope of like a normal girl is like somebody that you have to like figure out how to 
trick or like circumvent or something it's just a lame sort of stuff right that you can't be yourself because no woman would like you that way so you should fake it when you're with her yeah and you have to go to lame movies because you know women don't like action movies right right and so he tells adam the kid you need to turn the other cheek and he's like well what if he hits the other cheek and he's like then you extend your hand in friendship and you know jocelyn smiles and nods like yes that's my good boy charles and buddy's like oh geez you know making fun of him and so then we cut to downstairs in the basement charles is you know apartment for all intents and purposes that's where he lives and he's trying to pick out what shirt he's going to wear for his hot date that night and sarah and jamie are downstairs talking to him and they're like you got to talk to adam he went to school again today and got beat up and he did what you told him he turned the other cheek and he gave the guy gave him a shiner he's got a big black eye you need to go help adam and he's like i don't know what to do. I can't tell him because Jocelyn doesn't want me to do that. And I don't know what to say to him. And I don't even know. And Jamie's like, well, I'm going to go get him because you got to talk to him because he's beside himself. He's got a black eye. And Sarah stays down there. And Charles is like, I can't deal with any of this. This is too much. And he's all like emotionally overwrought because he's torn between these two things. And he's like, I I can't deal with any of this. I got to go change. Yeah. Well, he's already hinting at this idea of a personality crisis. He's sort of in a rhetorical way going, look, my girlfriend wants me to be somebody. Buddy wants me to be somebody. You guys want me to be this person. I don't know who I am anymore. And he's sort of, it's one of those classic things of like, you know, I just wish I could dot, dot, dot. Well, and the last thing he says before he goes into the laundry room, which is off camera, is I've got to change. Yes. And so he goes into the laundry room to change his shirt. Yeah. which he he only ever has two buttons done on his shirt throughout part of the Scott Bayo season two look. on. Yeah. So he goes into the laundry room to change. We hear a thud and then he starts hopping back and forth in front of the doorway that we can see going out, 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 out. And we're meant to understand that he has banged his head. He comes back out and he's like, how you doing? Yeah. Don't you call me Charles. Nobody calls me Charles. I'm Chaz. Call me by my real name. The first thing he says when he sees Sarah in his room as he goes, this is a man's bedroom. Ain't you got no class? And so we are introduced to Chaz, right? Chaz is much more Italian than Charles. Very Italian, very like Jersey. Um, yeah. He's got the like- Use guys. Use guys. And um, anyway, so he's like, oh, what are these gross clothes? Yeah, well, like- well no, what he says, I put this one down. I can't go looking like some fruitcake count of Monte Cristo. And then he slaps Sarah's ass. And she's like, what the hell just happened? So there's a lot of instances in this episode of sort of adult things or what I would consider like pretty inappropriate stuff for a family show getting kind of semi-surreptitiously slipped in there. There's a time later when he mentions something like, oh, she can give me a valve job. And I was like, whoa, Jesus. Like, there's little things like that that I'm like, okay, all right. He was talking about 
the fact that the new girl he starts dating, Tiffany, lives with a bunch of motorcycle right. mechanics and knows how to fix well, a car. Okay. So he it was a double entendre, but it but he was in the process yeah. of describing that she knew how to work on cars. Right. That's what I mean. In that case, it's a little sneaky, but that's still like that's a definite illusion. Oh yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the whole Tiffany aspect of this. In addition to Adam getting bullied, Charles has sort of been getting bullied by Daniel Baldwin. That's right. Daniel Baldwin guest appears in this episode as Lyle the Lunkhead. And he is in jeans and a jean jacket. Before Charles is changed, right? When Charles is not Chaz, Charles and Jocelyn go on their date. And they go to his mom's restaurant, the Yesterday Cafe, which is set up to look like a, a 50s diner, 60s diner. And there's this guy who looks an awful lot like a Baldwin. And we were like, which Baldwin is that? That's not Steven. Is that Billy? Because he's kind of like, you know, thick. But we were like, oh, well, at this time, Billy was still skinny. It's not Alec. Which one is it? Ah, it's Daniel Baldwin. Daniel Baldwin is a tough guy. And he's like, hey, you guys are sitting at my table. And that was like, he wasn't having it. And Charles was going to stand up to him. But Jocelyn gave him the look again, like, you can't do that. And so he was, he got soda poured on his hand as he extended it in friendship. And they ended up not getting their booth. But the the guys, what ended up hap- happening? He was like, "Oh, I gotta get out of here anyway." Come on, Tiffany, and she's like, "I'm sure." Here we go, and they walked out. Ellen Travolta. She was like, "Is there a problem here, boys?" And Charles was like, "No, mom." And he was like, "Oh, mommy." And then they ended up leaving because he didn't want to embarrass him in front of his mother. Yeah, Charles gets razzed for being a mama's boy, but then yeah, so when he shows up again. As Chaz, after his transformation, he just he essentially breaks up with his his girlfriend, the nice girl, and walks over to those two, to Lyle and Tiffany, and slams down Daniel Baldwin with like a Vulcan neck neck grip thing. Lyle is very easily subdued, right? If he's supposed to be like the neighborhood tough guy, all you have to do, Scott Bayo is like a third of this guy's size. Yeah. Oh, he's like Barney Rubble to his Fred Flintstone. All you have to do is grab this guy at a certain point in his neck. And like, it, it's almost physically awkward for them to portray this, you know, Scott Bayo holding him like this, but he's completely disabled. And Scott Bayo is basically like, Hey, Tiffany, uh, you'll be, you're my girlfriend now. And he takes her and now they're together and they leave. Yeah. And this is super early on in Daniel Baldwin's career, right? This is uh, like his first television role was an episode this same year. This is 1989. Uh, he did an episode of Family Ties as a guest spot. And then he did um, Charles in Charge. Yeah. I think on Charles in Charge, they get him on the way up. <laughs> yeah, you know, they definitely do. He like within that next year then went on and did was in like Born on the Fourth of July and like moved on to movies or whatever. But yeah, so basically, Chaz has fully taken over Charles's life and everyone is immediately alarmed, right? We have scenes with all the various characters immediately being alienated. The thing that is so interesting about where this story goes is that Chaz is strangely monogamous, right? Yeah. He, his immediate agenda is, I need to marry Tiffany. 
I got to lock this girl down because she's so amazing. No wife of mine's going to work, honey. Yeah, we get that, that he doesn't want her to work, which, again, you know, all these shows are sexist as hell. But I thought that was such an odd plot twist. Like, I get that they don't want it's It's something for everybody to be worried about. Like, no, don't get married. But it was just so interesting. Doesn't Chaz want to sow his wild oats? Why is his whole itinerary, I need to immediately marry this girl that I met a few minutes ago? I don't know. Maybe he felt like he's done that sowing his wild oats long enough. But he also, I think he explains in the valve job comment about why she's like the perfect woman. He kicks Jocelyn to the curb because she's too square. And he's like, hey, you're with me now, honey, to Tiffany. And they get together and everything's great. But she's apparently in beautician school. So she comes back to the Yesterday Cafe after um, she and Chaz Lamborghini, as he signs his marriage certificate, yeah. have gotten married. They go to the Justice of the Peace. He calls home. You know, they are married by a homeless tramp. Yes. Right? It's supposed to be like that they're getting married in a circumstance that's so like they're not just eloping they're eloping in like the shabbiest little you know courthouse or whatever it's it's supposed to be and so the guy is dressed like he's he's drunk his clothes are all ripped he's got like soot all over him like it's just yeah he keeps taking comical. swigs of something you know a bottle that's inside of a paper bag as he's doing it he's got that like fake beard thing that you know when you were like dressing up like a hobo or whatever yeah. you would put a beard like that on but yeah he and it we we find out later on that he's a huckster he is a con man and he's been arrested for among other things impersonating a justice of the peace so the family has been freaking out because well first of all they were trying to figure out how they can get this marriage annulled because they're hoping that real Charles is going to come back and he'll be horrified at everything that Chaz Lamborghini has done. Right. But we forgot to talk about how Chaz Lamborghini has a series of wife beaters that he wears underneath yes. his leather jacket. And they're all different colors. He keeps changing them throughout the ep like the two different episodes. And every single one of them is ripped in the exact same place right at the bottom of his sternum, like where you can see his diaphragm. So you can see his abs, even though Charles isn't wearing a button up shirt in this episode that's unbuttoned all the way down to kingdom come he's got a wife beater on that's cut all of the different colors it was like they laid them on top of each other and cut them in the exact same place it's so ridiculous yeah Chaz definitely has a signature look which is this one hole exactly dead center in the middle of his tank top so we find out that like they're trying to say that it, the marriage certificate is void because he signed Chaz Lamborghini. They find out that's not true. He right. can use whatever now, name he wants. Let's just pause on that for one second because they're saying Chaz Lamborghini isn't his real name. Of course, part of the fun of the lore of Charles in Charge is that he has no last name. It's one of those things like you can't tell what state Springfield is in on The Simpsons or something. They never give you a last name for Charles. And as the series goes on, you have more and more reason to believe that he is Chachi from Happy Days, you know, Except because there's no Joni. Uh, right. Uh, but every, everything about him seems to line up with that same character, Alan Travolta being his, his mom and everything. 
Um, but yeah, he would have if he was Chachi from Happy Days. Like, doesn't the timeline not work out? Because Happy Days was supposed to be in the fifties and sixties. You're right. And then, like, Joni no, loves Chachi was supposed to be in like the seventies, right? You're right. It so only then works. He would have been. No, it only works in terms of his actual age. Like, you have to kind of look past the fiction of the show. And just kind of see actual Scott Bayo, perhaps starting with Bugsy Malone, where oh, yes. the movie where as a little kid he plays a singing um, gangster from the Prohibition time. It's amazing if you have not seen. It's called Bugsy Malone. Bugsy isn't Malone it? must see for any Scott Bayo fan. So Chaz Lamborghini, they try to void the right. marriage the because of that end. dead end so then they say okay well what are we going to do and then they find out that the guy who married them was a con artist so one of the things he was arrested for was impersonating a justice of the peace so the marriage certificate is null and void but before that happens tiffany goes back to the yesterday cafe and sits down with ellen travolta and is like I got to get rid of your kid. You don't like me very much, do you? And she's like, I wouldn't say that. And and Tiffany's like, no, it's okay, but I'm better than your son. He's like a low-life drifter. And I and he tells me that I can't work. And I'm the best manicurist on the East Coast. So I'm not giving up my career for him. So you got to help me get out of this marriage. And we get another Ellen Travolta making a meal out of no lines at all. Just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, oh, I can't wait till this ends. Yeah. Yeah. So we have another example of the reverse bump on the head strategy. We haven't mentioned Buddy's uh, sort of long-term girlfriend throughout these later seasons is Nurse Bennett. This is another thing that perfectly encapsulates the tone of the show. Nurse um, Bennett knows everything, and she talks just like this. Yes, she's she's a very silly character, and it's it's perfect for him because. Like you said, she wears a nurse outfit that looks like it's from a sex shop. And they call each other Nurse Bennett and Mr. Lembeck. Mr. Lembeck came in when his appendix burst. Like you said, Buddy is a parody of himself at this point. And so if you want to switch it up a little bit and give him, you know, a, a long term girlfriend for a while. You know, you can't just have some girl and say, well, I guess she likes him. Like, well, they, But they do that at other times. I guess so. But I like the way they created this whole crazy character and just, you know, like this cartoon character or like something at a Saturday Night Live and are like, let's have her be his girlfriend. And right. so she plays into the plots kind of the same way you're saying the professor does in in Gilligan's Island. You know, she's able to kind of throw in this, well, what I learned from medical school, blah, 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 and give us some crazy plot contrivance. Right. So she was like, oh, that was explain the lumps on his head. And Buddy's like, wait explain it in non-medical terms for us yeah. yeah and so then sarah recalls that he bumped his head and then nurse bennett is like oh well if that's the case then the solution is to bump him on the head again so they we get a great scene where jamie and sarah and buddy are in the kitchen talking about how they're going to set it up so one of them can hit Chaz on the head with this like rubber mallet and none of them want to do it. Um, and Buddy's like, it's simple. It's super simple. It's not going to really hurt him. It's not going to crack his skull because it's a rubble, rubber mallet. It's just going to give him a, you know, a bump, which is what he needs. And he, he twice during this like 
precursor scene is gesturing with the rubber mallet and bangs it on the counter and it recoils back up and hits him in the face. But so they've got Charles sitting there and Buddy's telling this long rambling story that sounds like Groundhog Day, but is really like the story of Groundhog Day, but he's talking about moles instead of groundhogs. And um, the girls have a great scene behind Charles where they're trying like Jamie goes to hit him. And I know baby Jay was drooling because this is a, we're in the fourth season of Charles in Charge now. So we're fully on Nicole Eggert is a sex symbol in real life and the costumes for her changed as that happened and so we've got her in this like midriff top that looks like overalls but only kind of goes to her ribs and then she's got these little like um she's wearing a skirt that has like a v so it like dips down and you can see her belly button and she's standing behind charles with her arms over her head like she's gonna swing this mallet come down on his head and she is standing there frozen because she doesn't want to do it. And she lo- she looks really hot. Yeah, Jamie's outfits have like a concept after a certain point. Like there's, she's like working with different designers from scene to scene. But uh, yeah, there's definitely, again, that that aspect of vaudeville to this, that aspect of this, we're putting on a show for the studio audience and we're all trading turns with this mallet and stuff. But what ends up happening is... None of that is even necessary. Charles just bangs his head on the table. Well, no, they set it up because none of them can hit him. And so Jamie goes, buddy, why don't you come back here and I'll explain to Charles what you mean. And so then buddy comes around and he's got the mallet behind him and he's going to hit him and he can't do it either. And so then buddy comes back around to the side of Charles and he's like, look, it's ridiculous. You, you signed your marriage certificate, Chaz Lamborghini. That's not even your name. Who has a name like that? It's ridiculous or whatever. And Charles stands up and towers over buddy and says i happen to like my name and buddy goes oh well i guess if that's the way you feel about it and he throws the marriage license down on the ground and so he bends down and buddy moves the table over on top of him so that he'll hit his head when he stands back up so it's it's contrived sure but he hits his head you know like we didn't see it happened off camera the the strike to the head that started all this, but this does not look that dramatic. I mean, I, have you ever done the thing where well, you are un, well, up underneath something, misjudging, well, and whack what, the back of your head? That's what I wrote down. It, it said, hurts. If, if this is enough to change your personality, then I should have a different persona every time I come down to this studio because I'm constantly <laughs> whacking my head. But yeah. It works. You know, we don't have to do the uh, 10 times back and forth like on the Adams family. We get one bump to the head, self-inflicted as the result of the contrivance, like you said. And Charles is back to normal, breaks off everything. You know, his whole life is back to normal. But again, Buddy now becomes lord budley and he's doing the fred flintstone thing right he's he's becoming a classy guy um yeah episode over so look again what can we say it's it's a silly trope it's one it's like those first few times they did it just legitimized it you know you can see these writers rooms going well but wait a minute that's not 
that's not how that happened. Well, they did it on the Flintstones. They did it on Gilligan's Island. So they did it on all of these other shows. So like we said, there's a, there's a wealth of amnesia episodes out there. We specifically honed in on some of these that were personality changes, but there's a lot of them where the personality change isn't an alter ego. It's like they just become more helpful around the house in ways that they never were before. And so their family, um, instead of like with Chaz, where the family's trying to like get him to change back and they don't like it, or like in the Flintstones where Wilma kind of likes it as at first, but pretty quickly is like, ugh, I don't really want this anymore. There's a bunch of episodes out there like Green Acres and um, uh, Married with Children where the family loves these new changes and tries to like keep the person from assuming their old identity. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, trying to think just off the dome when we were doing this, what is that Example that I cherish from my childhood of a story where the character forgets who they are because they got injured and everyone's depending on them. And then I realized it wasn't a TV show. It's the Muppets Take Manhattan, right? (laughs) That's the best example of this. When Kermit gets hit by a car and becomes, he joins an all frog advertising agency. Oh, that's right. Comes up with an ad campaign for soap. And then, you know, at the last minute gets brought out of it by. Uh, he gets socked by Miss Piggy. But uh, yeah, look, anytime they do this, it's fun to see the actor play a completely different character, right? And again, it sort of draws a line in the sand. If you're on a more serious-minded show, you still want a chance to do something different. So you say, okay, how can we have this character grow and change in a way that makes some sort of sense in real life? And if you're on these kind of shows, you say, let's have them get bopped on the head and become a completely different person. I think this one pairs nicely with like the doppelgangers episodes because we get to have our actors play something totally different, particularly this Chaz character is, you know, he's having Frederick and Frederick. He's having a fun time. They're, they're making a meal of it for sure. As you know, the actors, as we said, there are a ton of these out there and they are memorable episodes. They are funny, even though they're wacky and silly and don't really like fit in a, sort of normal, um, you know, straight down the middle kind of TV show thing. They can be done in so many different ways. The series finale of Full House is a two-parter where Michelle loses her memory and we get like a like clip shows, right? And it's a tearjerker because it's the end of the series. So it can be done in so many different ways. And we know that you guys have favorites. So we only picked four, but send us your favorites. We've got a list going. We're going to come back to this trope multiple times, I guarantee you, because one of my favorite shows, The Dick Van Dyke Show, is on this list, and it is it falls into this trope exactly. Dick Van Dyke becomes Antonio Stradivarius and is a little bit of a ladies' man. We've got to watch that one at some point and find some others to pair with it. So let us know what your favorite amnesia storylines are in sitcoms. Yeah, right on. So, so much for becoming a new person when you get bopped on the head. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're having an election. Our characters are running for class president, so we are throwing it all the way back to 1975, Welcome Back, Cotter, Season 1, Episode 5, The Election. 
Then we're going to watch Webster, season six, episode five, also called The Election. If you're looking for it on streaming services, though, it's listed as episode 11 in season six. Then we've got Parker Lewis Can't Lose, first appearance also on our podcast, season one, episode four. The episode is called Parker Lewis Must Lose. And if you're going to watch that one, it is... um mistitled so you'll want to watch episode four even though the title is wrong yeah on crackle on the streaming service crackle and then blossom season three episode 10 the making of president yep that will be next week and until then we are the sitcom study and we approve this message Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Studio dog.